Hi and welcome to Marking the Roll. Good to have you listening. Marking the Roll is a podcast for teachers. We're based in the Illawarra area of Australia, but it's for teachers everywhere. And as we're slowly learning, it's for parents everywhere, because what happens in schools and universities directly affects um, the sons and daughters of parents. My name is Phil Dye. I'm your host. I'm an ex-teacher, and I have an avid interest in education. I'd firstly like to thank uh, some um, some teachers, or maybe they're not teachers, I'm not sure who they are, parents who have... Um, become members of the podcast or have donated to the podcast. Uh, Sitaran, thank you so much. Sophie S., you know Sophie who you are. Uh, John, John B., Sophie F., um, thank you so much. Those people have become members of the podcast through the Buy Me A Coffee platform. And it only costs $5 to help support the podcast and, and pay the fees that we have to pay. Uh, this is entirely volunteer. No one gets paid for marking the role. Last week was episode 12 and we looked at uh, the year 12 exams. Now for those listening from other countries we have 12 to 13 years of formal education in Australia and at the end of the 12th year there is normally an exam although some states don't have one. Uh, Many do, most do Um, and we looked at whether it's still relevant in today's society and from the teachers that I interviewed Uh, And some of those teachers are also parents from the students that I interviewed. It seems that it is not. It is old world. Uh, Only 40% of university entrants uh, are due to this exam. Um, And students just feel like it's out of date. Well, one of the reasons it's out of date is that they still have to use uh, a pencil or pen and paper to write their extended answers. So I ask you, how long is it since you wrote a 1,000-word or 2,000-word essay by hand? Uh, We simply don't do it anymore. We have um, keyboards in order to help us edit. Now, writing is an essential skill. Handwriting is essential. I'm not saying that we should dump that at all. But um, a big reason that the Year 12 exams are out of date is that it's still handwritten. Another reason is that it's a summative mark. In other words, they look at this total mark at the end of the exam. It holds a lot of weight, whereas smaller formative tasks throughout the school life of a student is a better way of evaluating what a student has done. It makes sense, doesn't it? And um, another uh, reason is that um, it seems that the Year 12 teachers are doing the work of a university. If the universities had... Uh, exams to go into the different faculties, whether it's nursing, whether it's engineering, whether it's veterinary science, um, and not a long four-hour exam like medicine, but something that's just an indication of the student's aptitude uh, and personality, if their personality is suited, that would be a better measure. So all in all, the outcome is that the Year 12 exams are old world and should be dumped. This week, this is episode 13, we're looking at the rights of students. Now, the rights of students, there's many, many rights of students, and the rights of students equate and and equal to the rights of of human beings. Of course they do. 
But we're looking at particular rights. We're looking at the rights to be safe in a school environment. We're looking at the rights to privacy. Uh, we're looking at the rights of inclusion. And we're looking at the responsibilities that come with those rights. Rather than me interviewing just one person at a time, um, this episode involves a panel. Now, the panel was to be four people. We have a teacher from Queensland, Velma, K- Velma Carhill. We have a principal from New South Wales, Mark Smith. I was to have Dr David Armstrong, the Senior Lecturer in Inclusion and Disability from RMIT, and he was booked um, He was booked and confirmed but didn't turn up for the panel interview. Um, so we'll be talking to both Mark and Valma about certain rights. Um, sometimes the sound is a little bit fuzzy. Most of the time it's pretty good, so please forgive that. Here we go. The discussion on student rights and responsibilities. Okay, let's get straight to the point. We're looking at student rights and responsibilities and whether rights, uh, if it's even possible to acknowledge and um and, and go by those rights in this difficult education uh, time that we've got. So is it possible, let's do inclusion first, is it possible to be ex- inclusive of every student in a classroom where staff and resources are limited like they are now? What do you think, Mark? Look, I think the key to, to that, to the answer there is in the, the second half of your sentence around the resources, largely, um, I think unless there are substantial, a substantial uplift in the resources for mainstream schools, including all students with additional needs, is going to be um, highly problematic. Um, very difficult to achieve where everybody um, has their own rights, whether they are with special needs or not, have their own rights protected in those circumstances. What do you think, Velma? Um, I think that um, the word inclusive is bandied around a lot. We um, A lot of students are put on NCCD. Um, and for those listeners not in Australia, uh, the NCCD is the Nationally Consistent Collection of Data on school students with disability. So um, this collects all of the information about students with a disability in the country. Interestingly enough, and Velma goes into this later on, that there is no medical diagnosis required, no psychiatrist or psychologist uh, diagnosis or uh, report required. It can be simply what uh, the parents think, what the student thinks, or perhaps what the teacher thinks. We, um, a lot of students are put on NCCD um, that don't actually have um, a disability. We've just done our NCCD data upload and 27% of our year seven to nines have um, listed in that, that data set. And most of them are for social and emotional needs as opposed to actual disabilities. So if you're trying to cater for almost 30% of your students, um, it it is quite difficult with the allocated model that we have. 
Yes. Um, and do many of those students have a specialist individual carer? No, no. Um, they've obviously got a, they don't even have to have a diagnosis to be on the NCCD. Just have to say they they're, or their parents just have to say they do. And yeah. so, like, I don't have a problem with students with disabilities um, being on that list. Um, however, I would prefer them to be verified in some way. So to have a paediatrician or a doctor or something say, you know, this student has um, social and emotional um, like needs that um, a teacher needs to cater for, but a parent can, can just say that their student does or a teacher can say that this student does without any supporting documentation required. Is that your experience, Mark? I think the schools have quite a hand in, in, in our situation where we are a school that supports students with disabilities. Um, we have quite a hand in, in determining that level of di- uh, disability and the function, their functionality within our schools. Most of our students will have um, some form of diagnosed condition. But from my reading, when I was reading from the uh, New South Wales Education Department site, it's not necessary to have a medical diagnosis. Is that true? That's correct. Hmm. So we're, we're really looking at we're really looking at the functionality um, and the, the, the needs that are, that are um, determined as a result of that. That um, you know those students with um, lesser functionality, if you like. Yep. So in in today's in today's environment, when there's the resources are, are very thin on the ground, when staff are very thin on the ground, it's really impossible to guarantee that that in, inclusive right of the student. Um, but here's another question related to that: Does um, one student's right not to be suspended over and over again, for example, three suspensions in a row, you can't do that anymore, um, that student then goes back into the school and some would say that that infringes on the other student's right to safety. Do you think that that is the case, Mark? Um, it's not just the other students that are involved in this. There's a, there's a workforce. These are work yep. sites. And staff, they themselves are put at risk. Um, If I can um, digress with a little story, I was in an emergency ward last night in a major hospital in Wollongong and um, a young fellow was was acting out, um, swearing at staff, um, moving around in a threatening way. Um, The staff gave him fair warning. They, They spoke to him fairly, calmly, and let him know that if that continued, security would be called. That person continued. Uh, security was called. It did. Um, it did. It did escalate, and the police were called, and the and the, the police assisted the the staff at the hospital in managing this violent and aggressive behaviour. Um, and that's in keeping with the policy for health staff in that hospital that there is zero tolerance of violence of aggr- and violent and aggressive behaviour directed at staff. Now, <laughs> that person removed from a setting where there were 50 people in the waiting room, from babies to the elderly. They, their message was loud and clear. We don't accept that, that violence. We don't accept aggressive behaviour in our context, either for our patients or for ourselves. 
Sadly, that message is not the one that's given in schools. Sadly, that's not the message that schools are asked to give. So I correct myself on that. That's not the message that schools are asked to give around student behaviour. Right? There, there was at the hospital last night. There was no roundtable discussion with that person and their carer. Um, this this was um, a firm and fair action to protect everybody in that situation. And I think. What often gets overlooked in the in the promotion of the individual rights of a, of a of a student is the fact that we are members of a community that does have boundaries around the sorts of behaviour that can be expected from from each of us, and other people can be affected by that behaviour, and their safety can be seriously affected. And schools have an obligation to every student, not just the students whose rights. It can be perceived to be breached by um, a form of discipline that keeps other people safe. So, so you're really saying that with those rights come responsibilities, and the, the responsibility is to act within the the, the law. Look, I, th I think um, the 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 employers of the teachers have responsibilities to the safety of its of its workforce. Um, that yeah. needs a priority um, in the face of whatever rights might exist. And it's very hard to determine. There's no, it's, it's not a straight line, Phil. It's no, there's no clear response to what safety looks like. But, you know, we, we have the community example of what happens with smoking in restaurants. You know, the, the, the community expectation these days is that people don't smoke in restaurants. Now, when a restaurant puts up a sign that says no smoking, they're not breaching that individual person's rights. They can go and smoke and they, not, they have a right to smoke but not here. The, the reason that that sanction is accepted is that because it balances the rights of that smoker with the rights of everybody else not to be exposed to the smoke. It's an analogy that can only go so far, but the but it is an, an analogy that can also work around violence in schools. Valma, have you experienced, or do you know anyone who's experienced something similar with violence in the, in the school situation? Um, yes, Phil, I've been the victim of a um, assault by students and by um, and there have been other staff at our school that have been assaulted by students. Um, one of the meetings that I went to, a staff meeting that I went to, like the principal asked for our feedback um, on certain issues and, and my point was I would like staff, other staff, to be aware of violent students. Um, so... You know, you might have that student in your class and she's been excluded from, from me teaching her, but the other teachers may not know her violent streak and therefore, um, like I said, you know, the staff don't need to know who has been assaulted, but surely they need to know who they were assaulted by. I was told that Carry the on. privacy of the student was um, paramount and that that information would not be passed on to other staff. And my point then was, so the rights of the staff to remain safe in their workplace was secondary to the right of the privacy of the child. I, I think that principal may find themselves in breach of um, occupational health and safety regulations there um, because in our settings particular, in, in particular, 
the safety, uh, the, if there are risks associated with student behaviour, that will trump the need for privacy around that student behaviour. That's very interesting. So, um, Valma, in the, in the example that you just uh, just mentioned, what about the casual teachers that come in? Will a casual teacher be warned of a, of a certain student, or does that fall under the, the the privacy guidelines of your school? No, no one would be aware. That's right. the only. So you know, um, the principal said. How would you feel if it was your child that um, every teacher in the school knew that they had assaulted someone? And I said, well, I would expect that every teacher in my child's school would know if my child assaulted someone so that they can like, take measures to ensure that when they're on playground duty, they keep two metres apart instead of, you know, be closer or if yeah. they get a supervision. Um, for a, a class that that child is in, they, they can um, take avoidance behaviour to make sure that that doesn't escalate to a point where that student would lash out. Um, you know, um, I was told that once the national collection of um, data had gone onto one school and stuff, that it would be easier for us to access. But it also means that you have to look through a particular, like every student's one school reports to, to find that data out. Right. Yeah. And that's a big, that's a, a major research operation, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, at the beginning of each year, a teacher will download dashboard um, and find out, you know, what what the student's profile is, but they don't go back and read every one school report that's ever been written on about a particular student's behaviour. They would, like, you talk about workload creep, there it is. Um, yeah. Yep. So you go on, on the dashboard that you have and there's nothing, like, you know, a student's profile will have a little red cross if they've got a medical issue, but there's nothing to say whether they've got a, um, a behavioural issue. You're listening to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers and anyone interested in education. We discuss the real issues facing educators without fear or favour. Please follow us on Facebook, subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. For more info, go to markingtherole.com.au. So, Mark, getting back to what you were saying, that, that is an occupational health and safety breach on behalf of the principal. I feel I, I I don't know the principal. I don't know the context of the school, so I'm, I'm reluctant to say more than th that. It's an interesting decision, and it's not one that we would make in our school. We we I suppose we go for a, a bigger picture of trust of staff. We're sharing information that's important for them to keep safe, but also to have them prepared in case there's incidents, so they're not responding in a shock in a shock form. You know, they're aware that these students can present. Not you know, they're not. There's not a label. That's, that's preparation for what may happen. Um, they're aware that these, these behaviours can happen and they can therefore be prepared and they're able to enact the training that's provided to them through our school and through which you know, the system should be providing that, that support. Um, you know, sadly, there is, a, there, there is an attitude of teachers where they, they do take this deficit model that teachers um, don't have the skills, they can't be trusted, so we can't share this information because they will abuse the information. I, I suppose I would be encouraging schools to um, say, let's trust our staff. 
let's know that this information is important to keep everybody safe, not just themselves, but everybody in the school. And, and the argument that was presented to Valma around the, the, as a reason for not sharing the information, you know, I, one would like to think that as a professional you're not guilted into a sense of um, compliance. Right. Look, while we're still on that that issue of student privacy, uh, what does a school have to tell a parent? So, if uh, just the recent case in America where the year eight boy was wanted to socially transition from being male to female, um, he told the school counsellor. The school understood perfectly well all about it, um, but. The parents didn't find out for six months after the process had begun. So the school was 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 very um, supportive of the boy and helping him, um, but the parents didn't know about it until six months later. Is that the sort of thing that could happen in an Australian school? I think it depends on the age of the student. I think just as there's um, um, that 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 the terminology around Dolly Incapacs where the police or the system will, the, the justice system will decide whether a student is capable of knowing the difference between right and wrong in, in the ages between 10 and 14. I, I think there's so many factors in, in this. How do we determine the student's ability to make uh, fair and reasonable decisions for themselves that don't need to be passed on to other people? I think I think students at the age of either 14 or 15 can get a Medicare card, and I think that's a, that's that's where the system has given some sort of threshold to, to um, autonomy, if you like. Um, I, uh, however, uh, if this was through a school where, um, say, a student had some gender issues and approached a staff member without a scheduled um, um, you know, meeting or, or plan for support over a long period of time, if they have just approached a staff member, and it could be a counsellor, it could be a welfare teacher, it could be anyone that they trust. The, the response of staff is to be supportive. That's what it is. And if they hear, yeah. and, and we're, we're driven by a code, well, we're guided by a code of conduct that informs our practice, and, and part of that is keeping people safe. So if, if we are informed of things that would breach um, child protection issues, for instance, we're obliged to, we're, it's mandated that we report. If we're informed of something that um, allows us to understand the student is at risk, we're also obliged to um, to, to pass that on. And, and if I can also make the point that when, t- when students approach staff with a concern, whether it's bullying or perhaps even gender issues, there is an understanding that the staff will pass that on. Now, the situation in America, however, was this was a it sounds like it was a it was a consistent perhaps even scheduled intervention over a long period of time my belief is that the school should have engaged the family and it is interesting that through that whole period the family didn't come up as an issue for the student in a in a way that meant that the family would need to be engaged there's a lot more we don't know about that yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we also don't know why Wyoming bans um, Bluey's fart jokes, um, but, yeah. still allows, <laughs> but still allows people to carry guns um, and yes. still be exposed at the risks of, of weaponry in school. Valma, what do you think of that privacy issue? Um, I mean, would would you, um, if it was your son, would you have wanted to be 
you know, informed and, and brought into the conversation? I am unaware of the actual case, um, apart from just hearing from it from you. But I'm surprised that the student hadn't discussed these issues with their own parents to start with. Mm. It is very unlikely in my um, in my history to for a student to approach the counsellors and stuff without without discussing that sort of stuff with their parents first. Yeah, you would think that that would be a, a major point of conversation, wouldn't you? Yeah, there's, it sounds like there's a lot more to it than we might know. Yeah. Usually yeah. Um, students will discuss that sort of stuff with their peers first, sound out how um, their peers will um, accept them before they disclose to their parents. But they very rarely disclose to other adults before they've disclosed to their um someone like at home that they trust yep while on that same issue of the transgender um there is some discussion i've been asked this on email uh does someone who's transitioning can they go into the bathroom of the gender that they're transitioning to when they haven't fully transitioned <laughs> whoever thought we'd be having this discussion but you know what does the department department say about that mark um well no they can't and that's that's not a choice they make it's left for, uh, it's left as a responsibility for us to provide um, a safe toileting facilities um, for all students um unlike a school recently that complained to their principal when they constantly were being caught vaping in the toilets. The students, <laughs> the students complained to the principal saying, well, why did you put a toilet in our vaping room? <laughs> no. So, uh, I'd I, I, I love to hear the response to that. But um, look, I think, I think as, as, um, time brings change around gender identity. We have to move with with that around how we provide toileting facilities for all of our students. Um, yeah. But so at the moment, though, they can't just go in. There's an assumption that boys who go into a boys' toilet in a state high school or any high school are safe. There's an assumption that girls who go into a girls' toilet area are also safe. That's not always the case. Um, it, we we may move towards a model where they they're individual cubicles, uh, where they, they are um, you know uh, where where they're they're not gender specific. Mm. Mm. I I attended yep. a conference at a um, state school in Brisbane um, last year, and the the toilets were all unisex. So. Um, so my girlfriend and I went into the toilets and we were having a conversation as, as women do when they're in the bathroom and um, a man's voice comes over the wall saying, I always wanted to know what women talked about in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, that seems to, be, seems to be the way it's going. Well, on that lavatory note... Uh, I think it's time for a brain break. Uh, a brain break is where we uh, take the electricity in our brain down by listening to some music. And this time, our brain break is from Gregory Paul Manif. 
Now, Gregory is a musician, a composer, a pianist uh, from the Illawarra. Uh, you can find him on Spotify. It's a very relaxing style of music, um, beautiful to listen to before you go to bed. Uh, and here is his tune, Lily and Luna. beautiful piece was called Lily and Luna by Gregory Paul Manif, a musician, a composer, wonderful pianist from the Illawarra, and you can find his music uh, anywhere. You, uh, you get your music, it's certainly out on Spotify. This episode of Marking the Roll is brought to you by Coolangatta Estate Winery. Coolangatta Estate is on Bolong Road near Berry, about 50 minutes south of Wollongong, and is the region's most awarded winery and hospitality venue. The cellar door is open from 10am to 5pm daily. Just Google Coolangatta Estate for information. And thanks to Coolangatta Estate for that sponsorship. I was a bit surprised when I heard of it, and I, I thought, geez, I know teachers like a drink, but um, I realised that uh, teachers also have Christmas parties, and it's the ideal venue down near Berry, um, just in the northern Shoalhaven, the southern Illawarra, uh, for staff Christmas parties. We're now going to continue the panel discussion on student rights with Mark Smith, the principal of Lamandra School in Sydney, and Valma Cahill, teacher from Queensland. And we'll begin this next part with a tricky discussion on challenging ideas. And, and another issue that's uh, been quite big in the UK, and it's been mainly in universities, but it's gone into high schools as well. Is that, is that students are complaining about teachers who present challenging ideas. When there's a, a, a topic, let's just say um, they're looking at the First World War and uh, they're looking at the history of the First World War and the, the, the 15 years that led up to that and eugenics was a big, big movement. But um, 
In the UK, some students have banded to say that they they are offended by even hearing about that eugenics. Can we do, I mean, is that possible? Can a student complain about actual content? Mark, have you had that experience? No, I haven't, Phil, but I suppose they complain about, they can complain about anything they like. Well, the vaping room. They're like the vaping room, yeah. Um, that That's a disturbing trend uh, towards narrowness, I'm afraid. Um, the, I, and I don't think as an as a educationalist, as a teacher, where the, the ethos is, of teaching is based on risk-taking, where we can condone taking away the risk of new knowledge, new understandings, exposure to things that challenge us. Um, I, that's not called teaching. Yeah, no, I, I agree. A, I did have a parent contact me last week about um, teaching evolution in the Year 10 science curriculum because it wasn't something that they believe or um, instruct their own child on. And they asked me for an alternative um, assessment task, to which I replied, it's part of the Australian curriculum. I don't ask for um, an opinion or um, your point of view. It is literally like teaching the evidence behind the theory of evolution. And to which the parent then agreed that their child would sit that piece of assessment. At the end of the day, Velma, it's just information. Uh, Phil, That's right. Is, uh, Phil, it's not a new thing in a sense, um, teaching back in the 80s and teaching senior English to using um, a, a fa- fabulous novel by the name of Jono. There's a critical point in the middle of the novel where the, one, one character writes a letter to the other and uses the F word. Now, it's a critical letter. And that formed the basis of a year 11 exam for us, for myself and other teachers, we put it together. Now, so the exam paper carried the F word, just as the Australian novel approved by the Department of Education did. The first we heard of the issue was when we got a call from the principal on the morning that this was to be published in the Sydney papers, um, just to remind us that our jobs weren't under threat. Very reassuring. Very reassuring. But we, we were certainly called in to explain why we would choose to use that particular element of the story for a Year 11 exam, uh, a, a discussion easily won by us. However, that question didn't appear in the exam paper and 50 copies of Jono sat in the storeroom never to be used again. Oh, dear. I often tell my students it's not my job to teach you what to think, it's my job to teach you how to think, like how to yeah, take that good. information and make like make it your own, like yeah, because like they are only under our like our um, guardianship for you know a few short years, and then they go out into the real real world and they need to form their own opinions and their mm-hmm. own take the facts and, and turn them into their own belief system. And it is our job not to teach them what to think, but how to take that information and make it their own thoughts and, and, and words. Exactly right. Well well said, Velma. I, in the, um, the scenario in the UK, it was because a group of students felt unsafe talking about it, um, thinking that, uh, other students may pick up and say, "Oh, this is oh, this is not a bad idea. This 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 theory." So there was the thing of safety. So that's 
what they confronted the headmaster about. What regular form of safety were they talking about? I'm just thinking back. It was on the unheard side. It was about they felt uh, threatened um, in during the discussion. Evidently, the discussion got quite um, animated. Um, and, gee, at university and senior high school, that's what you want. You want, you know, discussions that are pretty solid. Um, and they felt unsafe about that discussion. Well, I'm glad... Uh... Western democracy didn't uh, hinge on the outcome of that discussion. <laughs> That's right. Now, uh, look, we're nearly we're nearly at the end. Can you think of any other issues to do with student rights, or um, any any policies of uh, behaviour, perhaps restraint, uh, inclusion that you see could uh, raise issues for teachers in Australian schools? Is there anything that comes to mind, Velma or Mark? Well, we had training the other day on um, restrictive practices and um, when you normally think of restrictive practices, you generally think of um, holding or restraining a child, but we were told that keeping one in detention is now a restrictive practice and also banned under the rights of the child. So... Tech, um, even the point of students who are non-compliant, um, repeatedly non-compliant, the department has removed 40-minute um, detentions from our list of strategies for restoring that. Right. What about if it's a, a twenty, like a 20-minute in, kept in at recess to finish no, some no, work? No, if the student's not allowed to leave... Like, or they think they're not allowed to leave, then that is classified as restrictive practice. <laughs> so, so they only have to think they're not allowed to leave. That's correct. Fe they feel restricted, so you are restricted. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. We had a whole two-hour PD on it. <laughs> oh, Mark, what's your view on this? Oh, look, I'm so happy that we have a restrictive practices on, on trains that doesn't allow me to get off the train between <laughs> stations. So pleased that we've got doors that automatically open at the station. Um, do I feel my rights are breached in that moment? No. And, and Valman, lovely to see that Queensland and New South Wales are in sync as the pendulum swings all the way in the direction of individual rights. Hopefully it will swing back, but we're dealing with the same ideology, the same ideological changes around where those the balance of rights sits, and it's certainly with the individual and not with the collective, not with the community, not with the other students or the staff in the school, but with the individual. Um, will that make places more equal? I doubt it. Uh, will that make them more safe? Absolutely not. Uh, we've, we've, we've now moved... To, the to a stage where we are looking at employing security guards. Mind you, they won't have jackboots or lightning bolts on their shirts, but we still need a level of support that the department is no longer willing to support um, its staff having the training in. So um, from, you know, I'm, I know I'm as one principal I'm making this call, I'm sure I won't be the last where uh, schools regard um, this this trend towards individual rights is also a trend towards getting the, the the form of support that will keep people safe, staff and other students. Wow, um, 
Velma, any uh, any idea of uh, security guards at your school? Um, well, we've like Queensland are in the process of putting six foot um, high barbed fences around all its schools. Um, so our school is like a prison. At nine o'clock, the gates are all locked, and at five to three, they're unlocked. And so students can't wag. Um, and go to the local park to vape anymore. They have to do it at school because they can't get in or out. <laughs> that sounds like a horrible configuration of um, individual rights here, Velma. Yeah, everyone, even the teachers could say that their rights are being infringed. Yeah, we can't get out unless you get out and lock, unlock the gates. So, like... yeah. uh, I suppose you could say a staff meeting is a form of restraint on the teachers. Practice on the teachers. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, and uh, and I'm guessing that attendance to lessons will become voluntary. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, and, and that's a good addition, Valma. Anything else that comes to mind, Mark? Look, I, I, there is there is a push for inclusion within our state. Absolutely. And there are many cases where students with additional needs or disabilities can be included in mainstream regular classes. There's no doubt about that. Um, even at, at that level where students can be easily accessed with phys the physical reconstruction of a room or a building or a or stairway or whatever, they're easy and they should be done. And our students should have access to the full suite of learning within the mainstream setting. However, there will be a range of there will be students with a range of disabilities that need something more than what a mainstream setting can offer. Uh, that the school the system provides a, a whole suite of different sorts of educational facilities that allows the students with particular needs to have those their educational needs met as well as their other support needs. Um, I think it's um, it's a fiction to believe an ideological fiction to believe that they can all be included uh, within the one setting and that this will work for everyone. It won't, not even in the most highly resourced schools. Um, and and um, they, there will still be um, a risk that um, the education that's provided there is not suitable for all students. I know my setting students with a mental health condition or with um, serious challenging behaviours, I know the setting is one that provides a form of education that meets their needs. And, it, and to make that point, the schools around New South Wales, similar to mine, are about to launch on getting parent feedback on whether they believe that their students are best suited in schools specifically designed to cater for their sons and daughters, or whether their educational needs, welfare needs, wellbeing needs are best suited in a mainstream setting. I look forward to those findings, Phil, because yes. I, know, I know the findings that the department is using to, to validate, part of the findings they're using to validate the move towards inclusion, has a very small sample size. Uh, and, yes. uh, and, and I don't, whilst the, the students with disabilities is a very broad term, I would be very interested to see um, from which areas of disabilities this, these, these the pre predominant um, responders to their, their research, uh, which, which areas of disability they actually come from. And uh, it was interesting, Mark, that uh, I read all that research and there is a phrase or a sentence 
uh, buried away that says several of the respondents answered the questionnaire twice. Phil, in, Phil, in keeping with that, the preamble of one of the articles sent to me to read around the validation of this policy, the preamble says we will be looking at all of the research that shows that inclusion and inclusion models work. And as Mark said, if you only look at the research that reinforces your ideology, well, uh, that's the outcome that you're going to come up with, isn't it? And what's the use of doing any so-called research? It's like only interviewing Liberal voters uh, for an election poll, and therefore it comes out that, yes, the Liberal Party are going to win. You were listening to Mark Smith, the uh, principal of Lamandra School. You were listening to Valma Cahill, teacher from Queensland. Um, and uh, this is not the last of the panel discussions that we'll have uh, on various issues. Just reminding you, I did invite Dr. David Armstrong, the senior lecturer uh, from on inclusion and disability from RMIT, and he was to present uh, an alternative viewpoint, but he didn't turn up to the discussion. And I'm going to conclude this topic with the idea that it seems that too many inside educational bureaucracies are more focused on validating a certain ideology instead of looking at what is best for its students. In today's world, not only in Australia, but all over the world, in schools and universities, ideology trumps what is best for students. You've been listening to Marking the Role. Marking the Role is a non-for-profit. No one is paid here at Marking the Role. And if you'd like to help us to exist and help pay some of our platform fees, you can go to markingtherole.com.au um, and go to uh, buy us a coffee. Uh, and if you can buy us a coffee for $5, that'll help us along. Or you can become a member of the podcast. And membership gives you quite a few lurks and perks. My name's Phil Dye and next week we are on teacher professional development uh, and we'll be discussing that because that comes in for a lot of flack from teachers all over the country. I'm not sure about internationally but teachers are saying that the uh, mandated professional development is boring, boring, boring. See you next week. <laughs>